Good morning, everybody. Just want to welcome you as well uh, this morning. About three years ago, we were up in West Virginia at a retreat, and I had seen Josh, who was just standing up a few moments ago, our missions minister, and I could tell he'd been awake for a while, and it was still, it was only like 8 o'clock in the morning, and I said, hey, how's it going? And he says, wow, I have uh, couldn't sleep last night. I got up, and I found a coffee shop here in West Virginia that was open at 5 a.m., and I'm in there. I'm reading this book, and I'm bawling like a baby, and I just, you got to read this book, and the book is called The Shack. I said, okay. So I read it, and it was deeply, deeply moving. Paul Young is here with us today. When he wrote this book originally, he did not write it for a wider audience. He did not write it to become a New York Times number one bestseller. He wrote it for his kids. He's got six kids. He wrote it for his kids. That was the intent and purpose, and people read it, and um, nobody would publish it, so he self-published it right out of his garage, and it just took off. We had dinner with Paul last night, and he's just a wonderful guy, very down-to-earth, and just ministers out of a humble heart, and that is so touching. He told us stories about going to an atheist book club, talking about the shack, talked to us about sitting next to a... U.S. Senator on the way here last night and gave him a copy, and that Senator was reading the, the shack halfway through before he got there. I think that your heart will be touched deeply today, and I want you to help me welcome Paul Young. Thanks, bud. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Good morning. Good morning. I had to take a picture for my kids. Hold on. Okay. Okay, wave. God, you guys are so obedient. <laughs> Thank you. So this guy gets to heaven. This is my favorite joke. Josh and I are telling. And Inga. Well, you know, Josh came and picked me up in a red Jeep. Okay. If you've read the book, that kind of sure should ring a bell. And uh, we were telling, and he's got a girlfriend in town, and he still came to pick me up, which I think is asinine. But, you know, so we're, we're telling our favorite jokes, and so I thought I'd tell you my favorite joke. Guy gets to heaven, and he, uh, he sees the pearly gates, but he doesn't know quite what to do. I mean, do you just walk in? He was kind of... It's kind of funny. I, I'm not used to being on the ground because usually nobody can see me. <laughs> I'm short. So like five foot six and a wish. So yeah, good luck. And um, anyway, Peter sees his consternation, comes out to meet him, and he says, Peter, do I, just, do I just walk in? And Peter says, well, it depends. He says, it depends on something. He says, yeah. He says, well, what does it depend on? Peter says, well, it depends on how many points you have. I have to have points to get in? Oh, yeah. Well, how many points do I need? Well, you need a hundred. A hundred points? Peter says, yeah. He says, oh. He says, well, for the last 15 years, I've been working down in the soup kitchen on Saturdays, you know, helping with the poor and stuff. Peter says, oh, yeah, I'll give you a point for that. <laughs> a point? I was telling uh, Josh, you know, that... 
when you're married, you find out that everything is one point. Yeah, you make a card for your wife, it's one point. You give her a diamond, it's one point. So don't think you can get more points. You know, it's the, it's the quantity of points that matter. It's, the quality matters, but only because it's one point. But I'm just telling you. So that's totally free, aside of the, of the joke. So he says, well, Peter, I've been, um, I've been a pastor for 35 years. I mean, I, you know, a little town I'm in, I married people and buried them and preached on Sundays and, you know, only went on vacation when my contract said I could. And 35, Peter goes, well, I don't know. It's Peter, 35 years. Okay, I'll give you a point for that. Now he's worried because that's sort of his whole life. He's got two points. And just then he sees this other guy from the same town. Nice guy, shows up to church a couple times a year, you know, has a little shop downtown. He walks right past them and in through the pearly gates. He says, Peter, are you you telling me that that guy has got 100 points? Peter says, oh, no, he just doesn't play this game. The reason I like that joke is because it it attacks a little bit of our paradigm about the character and nature of God, which is really the the basic question. And you know the book. I I wrote the book because I was, you know, trying to do like the Bible says and submit to my wife. And the um, it says that, by the way, it says submit to one another. And she's one of the other ones. (laughs) And. uh, so she had been asking me for about four years if I would write something that put in one place how I think as a gift for our kids. Now, our, our kids are fairly grown. My youngest is 18. Our youngest is 18. Our oldest is 31. So, and we've got now five grandbabies and one on the way. So, you know, I'm old. So it, that's who it, the audience was. And when I made my 15 copies at Office Depot, it did everything that I wanted it to do. Gave it to the six kids and then... Kim got a copy, Kim's my wife, and then I gave the rest to my friends, and I went back to work. And, um, you know, I, you will find, as we tell stories and things like that this morning, that I absolutely believe now, and it took me a long time, it took me a good 50 years, I believe that God is good all the time. Now, I used to say that, but religion always teaches you how to use language that covers up the truth. And... Uh, so I would say things like I trusted God, but I didn't really. You know, when you were singing that song, I always wonder what goes through people's minds when they're singing certain lines of a song. Like in the one song it says um, for something about for the judgment you bore, you know. And I'm thinking, what do people think that is? Like whose judgment did Jesus bear? Right? I mean, that, that thought crosses my mind. Whose judgment did they think Uh, do they think that Jesus bore? Well, see, the way I grew up, Jesus was bearing the judgment of God the Father. Let me tell you, one of my great sadnesses is a religious man who beat the crap out of me growing up. I'm a missionary kid and a preacher's kid, and my dad comes from a destroyed history himself. And uh, part of my great sadness is the difficulty of my relationship with my father that is represented in the book by Mackenzie and his. And if you're, if you're wondering, the shack is a true story. It's just not real. You know, it's fiction. 
but it's a, it's a parable. It's a true story. Parables are true. They're just not real. And um, I had a writer from Nashville who wrote me when the book first came out, and she said, I don't know who you are. I don't know your history, your backstory, but my sense is that Missy, who's the main character's daughter, that Missy represents something murdered in you as a child, probably your innocence. And Mackenzie is you as an adult trying to deal with it. And I showed that to Kim, and she said, boy, she nailed it. That's really true. My other part of great sadness is sexual abuse, not inside my family. I grew up in a tribal culture in the highlands of New Guinea. I was 10 months old when we went in as missionaries, and uh, I was the only white child in the entire valley of 40 to 60,000 people over 100 square miles inside our tribe who'd never seen a white person before. And, uh, and they were my family. I mean, they raised me. I was, grew up in a generation where, you know, my parents' generation didn't even know they had baggage, you know. And, uh, and my dad sure didn't. And, you know, my father's not an evil man. He, he's a broken man and a mixed bag. You know, he's, he helped thousands of people find Jesus. He did. And uh, he just didn't know how to be a father. He's become a better grandfather than he ever was a father. We had a six-month period where um, Kim's mom died. She was 59, went in for gallbladder surgery in Portland and died of a massive coronary. And three months before that, my brother Stephen uh, was killed at 18 years old. And then three months after that, my five-year-old niece was killed the day after her fifth birthday. And so we know what that kind of loss is like. And when Stephen was killed, my father didn't shed a tear. But when Jennifer was killed, he fell apart because he'd found a way to open up his heart to his his grandkids, not mine, but my brother and my sisters. We live too far away. And, um, and so, you know, and, and my uh, niece, Tara, who is Jennifer's sister, Jennifer who was killed, my niece, Tara, told me a few years ago, she was date raped when she was 18, and she said to me, uh, Uncle Paul, she said, if it wasn't for Grandpa, my dad, I would hate every man on this planet. We're mixed bags. You know, and so part of the questions that we have is, who is God and what is God's character? And who am I? Who am I to this God? And what does it mean, you know, in terms of relationship? And, and how do I matter? And those are some of the things that, that we want to talk about. But I want to weave it inside some stories. Because stories, I love stories, as you can tell. Um, stories and any creative thing, music does the same thing, and so does creation. If you just go out and see the ocean for the first time in a long time, you know, you just kind of get overwhelmed by it. Or if you're in a really great rainstorm, there's just lots, uh, you know, where your little grandchild comes up and says, Gramps, I love you, out of the blue, you know. There's things that that are creative like that, that penetrate to the precious places of the heart without asking for permission. And stories are like that. Because every human being is a story. Not has a story. They are a story. And every human being matters. So, um, you know, I'm, my world is, is now involved in so many of the weavings of these kinds of stories. You know, when I went to boarding school, I was six, old, six years old when we first time I went to boarding school. 
And uh, that's when I found out I was white, which was a big disappointment. And, uh, I mean, it literally had not crossed my mind that I was one of them. Um, I, I know I'd been around the conversations with the tribal people about whether they were going to kill my parents or not. And I wasn't in any danger because I was a tribal person. And um, when I was five years old, I was the informant for Wycliffe that came in to translate the language because I was the only one in the world that could speak Dani in English. And so it was my culture. It was my world. And to find out that I no longer belonged to it, you know. And, and my, the sexual abuse began about age four and a half inside the tribal culture. And then uh, the first nights I was at boarding school, Christian missionary boarding school, the big boys came and molested the little boys. And it just became a part of my great sadness. You know, and the shack becomes a metaphor for the heart and the soul, the soul of a human being, the house on the inside that people help you build. And uh, a lot of us, we didn't get good help. And, uh, and so we perform. I mean, there's lots of ways that we try to deal with it, but performing is one of them. And I'm a, good, I'm a good performer. I'm a missionary kid. I can adapt to culture. I can figure out what the cultural signals are, and I can fit in, you know, because I, I hated the shack. You're ashamed of that house on the inside. And it's a place you never want to invite anybody into, you know, because that's where you store all your addictions and you hide all your secrets, you know. Why, why do you think we hide our secrets? Well, I can tell you a couple reasons. I can tell you one for sure. Is that, well, two, we don't want to lose control because control is all we have. You know, it's either trust or control. And when trust has been violated at an early age, you don't opt for it very often. Control is a lot more reliable, even though the, the byproducts aren't very good. At least it's, control is just trust in the only person you put any faith in, which is yourself. And, uh, but trust. You see, I grew up in a religious environment where I was told that relationship with God was about learning how to please God. Finding a way to please God. Which really isn't about God at all. Right? It's about us. You know, and every religion is that way. Every religion is about trying to find a way to please God. It's just got different rules. So you could have, uh, you know, five pillars of Islam, or you could have eight steps of Buddhist enlightenment, or 1,400,314 now rules of Protestant evangelicalism. You know, it's just, how do you please God? Give us, the, give us the list, see? And then we can sing about how God is distant up there in heaven, watching from a, the infinite distance of a disapproving heart. And, uh, but learning to trust God, well, that's about God. Because you can't trust somebody that you don't know loves you or cares about you or has your best interests at heart. And if you don't know that someone loves you like that, you'll go back to a place of control. Now, you'll use trust language because religion is very good about teaching us the right language that is part of the performance. But when things go sideways, when you get sick, when you lose your job, when whatever... Something happens to your kids. Then you find out you don't. And it's no surprise to God. It's a little bit of a surprise to us. The reason we hide our secrets is because we don't want to lose control. And the second thing is that we're terrified. 
We are terrified that if somebody finds out about them, we will lose the little bits and scraps of affection that we've managed to scratch out. You know, because we're performers. The shack is a wreck on the inside, a place I hate and don't ever want to invite anybody into. So I build a facade out here, you know, a piece of plywood that I can paint as fast as I can pick up people's expectations. What do you need me to be? I can do that. I can. You just give me an opportunity. I will work at that. And what do you need me to be? I can be that too. And I become a person who's different things in different situations. But I never let anybody in the shack because I'm terrified. See, our damage comes largely through relationships. And the irony is that so does our healing. We are designed to be relational beings. We're made in the image of a God who has never done anything by himself. There's always been three. We're designed for community. But it terrifies us. So we don't want to tell our secrets because we're afraid that the little pieces of approval and affection that we've been working so hard to earn that we will lose even that. But we're trapped by our secrets because when people come into our lives and they offer us grace and approval and affection and kindness and forgiveness, we don't believe them because they don't know the secrets. If they really knew, we don't think they would be offering us these things. The very things that would actually bring healing to us we don't believe, so we push them out. It's, it's crazy. We are as sick as the secrets we keep, and the shack becomes the place that we hold them, the center of our destruction. Mackenzie spends a weekend in the shack. That weekend represents 11 years of my life. It took 11 years to dismantle the facade, to find out, that all this performance for God and for everybody else, especially for God, God didn't care about. He loved the shack, my soul. The human soul is your uniqueness. That's what makes you different from the person that you're sitting next to. You laugh about things that they don't. You enjoy things that other people don't see the enjoyment in. You share many things, but there is this uniqueness to you about how you emote and how you think about things and how you enjoy, how you create, how you imagine. Your soul, it's unique to you. And some forms of Christianity or Gnosticism or some of these other religions, they want to kind of Get the soul out of the picture. They want to kind of annihilate the soul so that when people look at you, they just see Jesus. You know, and they use verses like, I have to decrease so that he can increase, you know, John the Baptist. But it's not true. Let me give you a verse, a couple verses, and that's the verse that we will jump off because it's so critical. What are we involved in in this process of life? A lot of us think it's about performing adequately so that we can meet the benchmark, whatever that is, of getting into heaven. Right? And uh, so people set that benchmark at different places. 
It's almost always transactional in nature. And that's what they think this is about. Here's the verse. 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 through 9. Here's what it says. You have a faith that is being tested by fire. Now, that's an interesting little phrase itself. Whose faith? You know, there's this odd little verse that says that we live by the faith of the Son of God, not in, of. And it's very clear that, that Jesus has come to dwell inside your soul. And brought his faith in his father with him. We live by the faith, his faith. So whose faith is being tested? Well, it's being tested inside of us. This faith. Because, see, God doesn't express his life apart from our participation. He doesn't even heal you apart from your participation. So this faith is being tested by fire. Well, that's interesting. Fire oftentimes, most of the time, is a statement about the character and presence of God. You know, people have been kind of upset with some parts of the shack because they want more wrath of God in it, right? And uh, I'm going, did you think Papa let Mackenzie off on anything? He just didn't have a big stick with a nail in it, right? He doesn't let Mackenzie off on anything. And do you think that the wrath of God represents what? See, what I believe is that God does nothing that is not motivated by love, which means the wrath of God has to be something that is motivated by love. I don't know if you've ever been in the woods and got stung by bees or wasps or something, but I have. And I had a friend who was in the woods as a kid, and he's getting stung by these bees, and he's being chased by them. And he's running back toward the cabin where his mom is, and he's yelling at the top of his lungs for his mom. And as he's approaching the cabin, he looks up to see her running toward him with a look of fury on her face. He said, if I didn't know who I was, and I didn't know who she was to me, I'd have thought, she's going to kill me. That is the wrath of God. Furious and a fire that desires to destroy everything that is damaging that which is precious to God, which is you. It's not about destroying you. It's about destroying everything that keeps you from being free. If you've got a child, like a friend of mine, whose son is a methamphetamine addict, if you had the power to burn that out of your child's life, you would do so in a heartbeat. Even though they may be clutching it as their survival mechanism. You understand? The wrath of God. There is a process. You have a faith that is being tested by fire, and now you are receiving. And now. And now you are receiving. That's process. The goal of this faith, well, that sounds pretty important. The telos, the goal, the end of this faith, which is, it says salvation, but the word is healing. It's the same word. And I like the translation healing better. The healing of your souls. The healing of your souls. 
Why? Because you matter. The way you look at... See, what God's desire is, is not to eradicate the soul so that when they look at you, they just see Jesus. He wants you to become everything you were intended to be in union with everything that Jesus is so that when people look at you, they see this absolute, magnificent, unique expression of the character and nature of God they could never see unless they looked at you. And it takes billions of us to sort of get a composite picture of what God looks like. Does that make sense to you? That's why you matter. That's why he leaves the 99 to go find just the one. You matter. He's especially fond of you. I was up in... um, Women's prison in Edmonton, Alberta. It was like 39 below zero outside. And I was talking, and when I'm done, one of the inmates, this woman comes over, and she collapses in my arms and begins to sob and sob and sob and sob. And the book has been ripping through prison systems. And uh, between her sobs, she, she says, whispers in my ear, finally, Do you really think Papa's fond of me? And I said, honey, he's especially fond of you. And she's just sobbing and she says, that's all I needed to know. That's all I needed to know. And I'm thinking that's all any of us needs to know. There is a God who is good all the time, all the time, who is not the author of any evil. There is no darkness in this God. There is no hidden agenda that God the Father has behind the back of Jesus. I tell people, who would you rather be judged by? If you're going to be judged by somebody, would you rather be judged by God the Father or Jesus? Invariably, they'll say Jesus. I said, that's good because John says that the Father judges nobody. (laughs) They go, that's not in the Bible. Yeah, it is. We have this sense, you know, and I grew up with it, that I'm trying to please my dad. And God was just a a larger expression of him. And I tell people it took me 50 years to wipe the face of my own father completely off the face of God. It takes time for the healing of the soul. And Mackenzie's weekend was 11 years for me. And at the end of that 11 years, I finally felt healthy enough as a human being to do something that Kim had been asking me to do for about four years, write something for my kids. And so when I made the 15 copies at Office Depot and gave them to my kids, you know, you give a book to your kids for Christmas, it's like, (laughs) thanks, Dad. We'll get right on that, you know. So it took them a while to read it, but when they did, it did everything that I could have imagined. I went back to work. And then the nutshell is that my friends kept giving it away. It ended up in the hands of some people that thought it would be a movie. That started a conversation about actually publishing it. We got it ready. Twenty-six publishers turned it down. The faith-based side of those half, half of them were faith-based publishers who thought it was too edgy. The other half thought it had too much Jesus in it. I got stuck between edgy and Jesus, you know. It's not a bad place. 
By the way, Kim, Kim comes to me later when the book actually gets published, and she says, you know, when I asked you to do this, I was thinking four to six pages. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I could have, if I had taken Jesus out, I could have got down to four to six pages. And um, so a couple guys I know created a publishing company, and we pooled our resources. I had a buddy who loaned me some money. The other guy had savings, and the other one had Visa and MasterCard, and literally. And we found a printer in Los Angeles because one of the guys said that he would ship the books out at night because he was putting in people's sprinkler systems during the day. And we ordered 10,000 copies, which we later found out is usually 8,000 in your garage after two years. And in May of 07, they drop shipped 11,000 copies of the shack to this guy's garage, apologized for the extra thousand and asked us to pay for them. And we didn't know any better. So we did. And we set up a website because we were in nobody's system. And in the first 13 months out of a garage, that local printer and two storage units, we spent less than $300 in marketing and advertising and shipped over a million books. We are brilliant. <laughs> it's been a God thing from the very beginning. God's sense of humor. My favorite quote about the book comes from Tyson, who's a friend of, my, of our families. He's uh, mid-20s, graduated from Oregon State a few years ago. And uh, he, uh, he knows us real well. And Amy, who's 23, gets him to read the book. Amy... Uh, She's one of those girls that can get any guy to read a book. And um, she gets him to read the book and then says, so what do you think? And he says, this is his response, my favorite response to the book. He says, Amy, this book is so far beyond your dad. You got to love it. Isn't that great? Because it's true. I mean, see, to me, this is about relationship, Right. This is about the healing of the soul, which is largely the eradication of the lies so that we can begin to experience the reality of what we've already been included into. And, uh, and so I didn't write the book by myself, but God didn't write it by himself either. So it's got mistakes. Those are mine. <laughs> and, um, but it's participation, because participation is a language of relationship. Now, you have to understand I never intended, that, like was said, I never intended this book to become what it's become. It was not even on the radar. I've never published anything or even thought about it. And now it's in, what, 41 languages and millions of copies all over the world. And, and it has this unbelievable gift of giving people a language to have a conversation about God that's not a religious conversation. I have, um, I've had a, I don't know if you know, but there's some controversy around it. Uh, some of you know. I love it. I, have, I absolutely love the controversy because it's part of the conversation. How do you get a religious person who is stuck in their paradigms to enter the conversation? Piss them off. That's what Jesus did. And he kind of went out of his way to heal people on the Sabbath. They're like, come on, Right? And I still think Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath. Why did he do that? Because he loves religious people. Right? But how do you get a religious person who's stuck inside their box? And I tell people, the only time you'll find God in a box is because he wants to be where you are. Right? But how does God begin to break that box? 
if he gets if he gets you upset, at least you're in the conversation. It's very different than ambivalence, where you just don't care, right? So I love the controversy. It's become part of the conversation. And uh, some people had a hard time with Papa when Papa came through the door, like my mom. Uh, if you if you haven't read the book yet, I'll it won't give it that much away, but. God the Father is a large black African-American woman whose name is Papa. Well, that surprised some people, like my mom. My mom, bless her heart, like they say in the South, bless her heart. In the Northwest, we call that the Southern curse, right? Because you're allowed to say whatever you want as long as you add that. He's such an idiot, bless his heart. You know, so my mom, bless her heart, she really tried. I mean, she really tried to read this little book her son wrote. And when Pop came through the door, she closed the book, picked up the phone, called my sister. Debbie, your brother is a heretic. And she meant it. This is my mom. So she got stuck right there. There is a God who is good all the time and involved in the details of our lives, but is involved in such a way that never removes participation from us and doesn't do it so that God can get credit, doesn't need any credit. God doesn't need any credit. God has all the the sense of wonder and fulfillment within the relationship that exists with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of creation was created for God to share the love and the fellowship that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. That's why we exist. Because God wanted to share his experience with us. Not because he needs us to, like, worship him and stuff. Because he doesn't. That's religion. So... Here's how my mom got unstuck. It's one of those stories, and some of you have probably heard it already, but it's a magnificent story. In 1946, my mother was in nurse's training. She was 18 years old, single woman, Victoria Jubilee Hospital, Victoria, British Columbia, way on the west coast of Canada. And she was 18 years old, single, comes from a German Baptist background. Now, in 1946... There was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the doctors. Yeah, some of you kind of know about that. And, I mean, it was like deity. You never countermanded a doctor. If, they wore white so you'd know they were holy and stuff. And if they walked in a chart room, everybody stood up until they were done. And if they stepped on the path, everybody vacated and let them by. And it, it was a holy order at the time. Now... In 1946, there was no neonatal, there was no NICU, there was none of this. Now, my mom is, a, is an RN. That's, she was in nurses training for that. My mother-in-law was an RN, and I love RNs, uh, nurses. And uh, the, uh, Mackenzie's wife is an RN in the book because of that. Um, and uh, I think nurses exist to protect us from doctors for the most part. So, um, so... There was a family in Victoria named Munn, M-U-N-N, and Mr. Munn was the senior pastor of the Anglican Church in Victoria, and he and his wife had been trying to have a baby. They were in their mid-late 20s, and they had had five 
second trimester miscarriages in a row. Five. And they had had a big conversation about whether to try again, and they decided that they would try one more time. And so, as you can understand, the community is praying for them, their church community, everybody knows about this. My mother had been at the school for three months. She had just gotten her cap, which means you look cooler, but you still don't know anything. And, and Mrs. Munn came into the hospital bleeding. She was six and a half months pregnant. They immediately called the doctor. He rushes in and says, uh, we're going to have to take the baby. And... Uh, they, he sets up an emergency C-section. He grabs the head nurse to assist, and he grabs a student nurse to assist to learn to do the cleanup. It's my mom. Three months into nurse's training, she's pulled into an emergency C-section in which the doctor delivers a one-pound baby boy, 16 ounces. Now, my third grandchild is Houston Parker. Yeah, you tell it. Okay, you, yeah, exactly. I got a little baby up here helping me out here. So Houston Parker was born premature, four pounds and a half an ounce, and I have a picture of his entire fist. His entire, doesn't bother me. I got five that are four and under, grandbabies. But I got a picture of, him, of Houston's entire fist inside my son's wedding band with lots of room to spare. At four pounds and a half an ounce. This little baby is one pound. The doctor puts this little baby boy into a kidney tray, hands him to my mother and says, it's not viable, dispose of it. Which meant the incinerator. And then he goes back to finish the operation. My mother is holding this little baby boy in this kidney tray and he is still breathing. And she is trying to figure out how in the world do I obey the doctor. So she takes this little tray with this little baby boy in it out to the service area to try to figure out what to do. And she comes up with a plan. So she finds a washcloth and wraps this little baby up in the washcloth, puts him back in the kidney tray, walks back into the operating room and puts him on top of the sterilization unit because it's the only warm place in the room. Right? And her plan is, well, you know, one-pound babies, they don't survive, especially boys. Premature boys are way tougher to stay al- keep alive than little girls. So she's going to wait until the baby boy dies, and then she can obey the doctor, right? Well, the doctor finishes part of the operation and leaves. The head nurse takes Mrs. Munn to post-op for recovery, leaving my mother to do the cleanup, which she does, and then she sits in the operating room holding this little baby boy waiting for him to die. The baby was born 8.30 p.m. May the 30th, 1946. At 9.30, the doctor meets with the parents. I'm so sorry. You had a little baby boy, but he didn't survive. So they're grieving. He goes home. 10.30, my mother's still sitting in the operating room holding this little baby, waiting for him to die. 11.30, 12.30. At 1.30 in the morning, my mother says to herself, I should probably tell somebody about this. (laughs) So she calls the head nurse who had assisted and tells her. And the head nurse says, we are in so much trouble. The head nurse calls the doctor who comes 
ripping back into the hospital, livid. He is furious. And he lights into my mom because my mother has now put him and the hospital in a situation. So he basically says, you created this problem. You are now responsible for it. But don't you dare say anything to the parents. Because everybody at this point is convinced this baby boy is going to die. So my mother takes this little boy up to the nursery, and they begin feeding him with an eyedropper. And over the next two days, he lost four ounces, one quarter of his body weight. And he's down to, to 12 ounces. And then he starts to pick up weight. Now the doctor realizes he's got to tell the parents. So he goes to the parents and he says, you know, I, I'm so sorry, but I spoke too soon. We thought your son would expire immediately, but due to the miracles of modern medicine, we've been able to keep him alive, and, but, he, but we don't expect him to live. And even if he does live, he's going to have brain damage and MS and all these complications from being premature. Well, they're thrilled. And confused. And they name him Harold. And my mother helps take care of Harold during the next couple months. Now, two weeks after Harold was born, Mrs. Munn went home. Two months later, little tiny Harold went home to his parents. And two years later, my mother, in the mail, gets a birthday invitation to a birthday party for Harold's second birthday. And gets the invitation because, you know, she helped with the operation. They knew she had taken care of Harold and all this. Meanwhile, the parents have been asking the doctor in the hospital, what really happened here? This is, just doesn't make any sense. Like two days, you know? And nobody says anything. Code of silence, right? So my mother goes looking to see Harold. She goes to the birthday party, and there he is. He looks perfectly normal. He's a little skinny, but... That's what she says. A little skinny, but looks perfectly normal. She says nothing. Well, she graduated later that year, and she goes up to Canada, and she goes to Bible school where she meets my dad. They graduate, get married, and they have a son. And when I'm 10 months old, the three of us pack up, and we move to the other side of the world where I grow up. When I'm almost 10 years old, we came back to Canada. And uh, I'm born Canadian. My sister and two brothers were all born overseas. In fact, between the four of us, we had four different passports, different countries. And the other three were all born in the same place. It just was a different country every time they were born. And uh, which mean, it makes border crossings very interesting, you know. So we got back. I went to high school up in northern British Columbia, up in Terrace, which is near Alaska. And, uh, and my mother happens to be working this one day at the hospital and happens to be working with an Anglican nurse on a day she happens to see a obituary in an Anglican newsletter for a Bishop Munn who had just passed away. And she asked this nurse, did you know Bishop Munn? And the nurse says, yeah, actually quite well. Really? Um, did he ever have, a, have any children? Yes, one son. Really? Um, do you know where that son is? 
this gal says, you know, I, I've sort of lost track of him. Last I heard, he's a missionary teacher in West Africa. He's got twin boys. Really? My mother still says nothing. Not for another 10 years. I'm like 27 or 28. When she happens to read the obituary, I don't know my mom's into obituaries or whatever, but she happens to read an obituary for that doctor who got so mad at her. Remember him? Well, now he's dead, and it's kind of like open season now, you know? (laughs) This is the first time my mother tells us, her own family, this story. It's the first time we'd heard of this. So my mother decides to track Harold down and finds him. He is now the senior pastor of the Anglican Church. Well, he just retired, actually, this uh, this last summer. Uh, Senior pastor of the Anglican Church, just down the road from where his father pastored in 1946. And my mother stews for about six months trying to figure out how to tell Harold because she doesn't want any credit. I mean, she's old school, as, as old school as you can get. So, so my mom finally sends him a letter, which I have, and an email and says, basically, we need to talk. So Harold and his wife meet my mom and dad which is a minor miracle. They've become friends. Because Harold's, you know, my dad's, he's Protestant evangelical, you know, kind of fundamentalist, you know. And Harold's Anglican. That's a, like almost not a Christian, you know. And, um, <laughs> and so Harold and, and my mom really connect. And my mom tells Harold the real story. And Harold says, we knew it. We knew there was this mystery about the way that I was born And we could never find out. And his parents had meanwhile passed away. Well, over the last few years, they become very close, Harold and my mom, as you can imagine. And one day, my mother is talking to Harold, and she says, Harold, I have this son, and he wrote this book, and I'm having a problem with it. And Harold says, well, Bernice, why don't you let me read it, and I'll tell you what I think. Well, would you do that? That's as close to imitating my mom as I can. And Harold Munn says, sure. So Harold Munn reads The Shack and sends me an email. Dear Paul, I read your book. I love everything about this book. But I think I know what your mom is struggling with. It's the imagery that you use for God the Father. Let me see if I can do something about that. So Harold blind copies me on an email to my mother. Dear Bernice, I read Paul's book. I love this book. But I think I know what you're struggling with. It's the imagery that Paul uses for God the Father. Let me tell you why that imagery is so important to me. And Harold lays it out. Orthodox theology. We know God is neither male nor female. That's orthodox theology. God's not like 51% male and 49% female, right? All of maleness and all of femaleness is derived from the nature and character of God. Do you know that the word ruach, which is the word for spirit, Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, is feminine? you know that almost every use of a verb in association with Ruach in the Old Testament is feminine? So like in Genesis 1-3 where you're introduced to the Spirit, it should be translated, 
And the spirit, she hovers or flutters over the deep. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's female, but it uses feminine imagery to help us get a bigger picture of the character and nature of God. God is pictured as a woman who loses a coin in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God is imaged as a woman, a nursing woman bouncing her baby on her hip. Imagery, and here's the point, does not define God. God is a rock. doesn't mean he's like igneous or metamorphic or something. God is a mother hen who covers the chicks. I tell people, well, I guess I could have had Papa come through the door as a big hen, but I just don't know if it would have done the same thing, you know? Imagery doesn't define God. Imagery is to help us understand the nature and character of God. And when it talks about God as Father, it's supposed to communicate to us elements of what fathering really is. But most of us, or many of us, have taken our experience of fathering, either a damaged experience or an absent experience, and we have plastered it upon the face of God and made him that much bigger. And that's why it took me 50 years to wipe the face of my father off the face of God. And here's the beauty of this story. This little baby boy, 16 ounce little baby boy that my mom saved in 1946, decades later, becomes the person who is able to build a bridge for her to walk across for her own son. And she did. See, we just don't have perspective. We don't see so much of the details. I was, uh, I have a friend named Dan Polk lives close to here in Annapolis. And um, I actually have a few friends. And, and amongst our group of friends, we have this, if we had a motto, it would be, If you like someone, you give them your time and your money, but if you love them, you give them your friends. And Scott Clausner gave me Dan Polk about eight years ago. Dan's younger. He's got a couple little, three little kids now, and uh, beautiful. And and, uh, one day, I'm on the phone with Dan, because we were talking about a trip I was taking through North Carolina. We were going to, I was going to speak in seven North Carolina cities in 10 days. And Dan, he was an investment banker, and on the side, he, um, he would buy up old houses and then use them to help people, um, uh, you know, young men learn trades and things like that and, and use it as kind of a discipling kind of environment. And, and he had taken on a job for his parents to remodel a house. And he said, if you ever want to quit construction, take a job for your mom. So... Dan had lost his, yeah, amen, brother. So Dan had lost his Finnish contractor, the guy that does the Finnish work. And Dan can do it, but he just didn't have any time to do it. And he happened to be talking to his real estate agent who would buy these old houses for him. And his real estate agent says, you know what? There's this kid in town that I know. I don't know him personally. He just got here. But people are telling me he's a really great Finnish contractor. Why don't you call him? So he gave, he found out this guy's number, gave it to Dan. Dan says, would you come and take a look at this house I'm working on for my parents? So this kid was over at the parents' house when Dan was there, and this kid was doing measurements when I called Dan on the phone, right? 
And I talked to Dan about 10 minutes about this trip to North Carolina. And I get off the phone and this kid says to Dan, um, was that William P. Young you were talking to on the phone? You know, the guy that wrote The Shack? Dan goes, yeah, why? He says, well, my, my father-in-law went to school with him in New Guinea. What? He says, yeah. He says, well, do you want to talk to him? Sure. So Dan calls me right back and explains, hey, you know how I lost my Finnish contractor, but I was talking to my real estate agent, and he gave me this guy's name. He happened to be here when we were talking and overheard the conversation. He said his father-in-law went to school with you in New Guinea. I went, what? I'm in Portland, Oregon, right? I'm talking to Dan in Annapolis, Maryland. I said, what's his father-in-law's name? What's your father-in-law's name? Joe Smith? Joe Smith. I went, Joe Smith? Are you kidding? The Joe Smith that went to boarding school in Santani? He said, the Joe Smith that went to boarding school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, talk to him. <laughs> so I'm talking to Joe Smith's son-in-law for about 15 minutes. Great kid. Had a great conversation. I get back on the phone with Dan. I said, Dan, Joe Smith was my primary sexual abuser in boarding school. <laughs> That's how Dan, you know, the air kind of sucks out of the room, right? I said, but don't say anything because I forgave him a long time ago. That was part of my 11 years. And he doesn't. So what I didn't know was Joe Smith was, a, this is uh, uh, two summers ago. And Joe Smith was in the States. And, uh, and a, a few weeks later, he spends the night at his son-in-law's house. And his son-in-law says, you won't believe who I talked to on the phone. William Paul Young, you know, the one that, uh, that uh, went to boarding school with you in New Guinea. Within 24 hours, I get a phone call from Joe. No, I get email. We need to talk. I'm in Orlando at a book thing. It's like a circus except for books. And, uh, and I get asked to speak this one breakfast to 300 people, and I'm walking in, and I call Joe. And uh, he says, uh, can I talk to you tonight? My wife and I are driving to New Orleans, and we're halfway through the shack. I want to finish it before we talk. I said, absolutely. You know, and I walk into this breakfast, and the first question during Q&R was, you've mentioned there was abuse in boarding school. Has any of that come to conclusion? And I just fall. I just like. And I'm telling them about this conversation and about, I'm saying I'm talking to him tonight. So they're praying and crying. And that night I called Joe and I said, you know, Joe, I don't know if this matters to you or not. I don't know if this is important to you, but it's really important to me. It's important that I know that you know I forgave you a long time ago. And he said, that's really important to me, too. And we have this 45-minute conversation, and we end up actually meeting when I went for those 10 days in North Carolina, sat across at a restaurant, just he and I. And he says, I just needed to see your face. I just needed to know that we're okay. And we are. God, who's good all the time and involved in the details, the judgment that Jesus experienced, do you know whose judgment that was? Ours. Not his father's. 
In the book, Papa has nail scars on his wrist. Why? Because we have this image that God abandoned his son, you know. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I know you've talked about Psalm 22. Make sure you read the whole psalm. Because it's a hit song. You know, psalms are hit songs. You know, and when somebody sings the first line of a song, everybody's kind of humming the rest of the song in their head. Well, the last lines of that song is, I know you will never turn your face from me. And we're thinking, yeah, God the Father abandoned his son and poured out his wrath on his son so that he could be right with me. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what fathers are like. They beat the hell out of their kids so that they can be okay with somebody else. Come on. If you have an image of God in which he is less of a father than you desire to be, your image of God is wrong. Why did Jesus cry that? And why do I identify with him more at that point than any other place? It's because he dropped into my experience. And in my experience, I've been crying out most of my life, where are you? I can't feel you. I can't sense you. Where are you? I need you like now. And Jesus who had never known a moment of absence from his father, dropped into my experience and yours. He became sin for us. And Paul the Apostle says, I'll tell you where God the Father was when Jesus was hanging on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.19, For God the Father was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. He was in his boy because his boy said, I know you are here. I can't feel you. I can't sense you, but I know who you are. You're my father. And so into your hands, I commit my spirit. I give you all I got and I can't sense you, can't feel you. And he was never abandoned. And Isaiah says, we esteemed him stricken by God. Of course, that's how we'd look at it, because that's our experience. We think it's God who poured out his anger upon his son. You know what it was? It was us. Jesus bore the wrath of the human race and met us at our deepest, darkest place where we were willing to kill life itself, himself. And by embracing us there, created a bridge. Last little story. I know I'm over time. The roast will survive. My mother visited my aunt in Victoria on a Saturday night. And this is my favorite aunt, who my mom's been trying to lead back to Jesus for 50 years. She took me to my first movie, which was uh, like outside the rules. It was The King and I with Yule Brenner. You can see his whole bald head and everything. Uh, Ruby says to my mom, let's go to church tomorrow. My mom says, what? She says, yeah, well, where do you want to go? Well, let's go hear Harold. Now, my mom and Ruby had never been in Harold's Anglican church, which is high church, which is vestments and, you know, I've spoken there. I got to wear a dress. It was so cool. <laughs> and so they slip in the back, and it's really, really easy to tell who 
doesn't know what they're doing, right? So this woman slides in next to my mom and says, I'll help you out when to stand and kneel and stuff. And so during the sermon, during the homily, Harold spots my mom and stops and says, folks, you need to know there is a woman here. If it wasn't for her, I would not be alive. And in fact, every person I have ever touched in my life, she has touched through me. And then he tells them the story and introduces my mom. And then he completes his sermon, at the end of which everybody goes to the front for communion. And the woman next to my mom mistakenly says, I'm so sorry, but in the tradition of this local congregation, you have to be a member here to participate in communion. And my mother says, oh, don't worry about that. I understand different faith cultures and stuff. I'm not offended at all. Well, everybody goes to the front for communion, at the end of which Harold takes off his outer vestments until he's just wearing his white smock. And then he walks over and he picks up the bread and he picks up the cup. And he walks down and down and to the back. And he kneels down in front of my mom. And in front of Ruby. And suddenly, you know you're included in this. It doesn't matter whether you're Anglican or Baptist or agnostic or because suddenly there's something that transcends all of this and it's a broken body. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who've come looking for us, knowing we are so lost we can't find them. A broken body and shed blood. And suddenly you begin to get a sense there is a God of relentless affection who pursues us to heal our very souls who in exchange for including us into this love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in exchange for that, have come according to John 14 through 17 and climbed inside our shacks, which they love, in order to heal us from the inside to the praise of His glory. Amen. Amen.